Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we come to you tonight, and and we just want to do just that. We want to praise you, and we want to say, fill with your spirit. Lord, we, we wish that so for, for those involved in this week's lesson. But, Lord, we should turn right around and we should desire it so much for ourselves. That's the, that's the thing we should really predominantly think about. Are we filled with your spirit so that, that anyone who comes in contact with us, that there is just no hesitation about who we belong to, that Christ only and always living in us. Father, we... We have noticed in these past couple weeks that you are trying to teach us very different things that I think we didn't even realize you were going to teach us when we started. And so, Lord, we want to be receptive. We want to be open. We want to learn tonight. We, we need this strict, hard teaching. And so, Lord, we come desiring and seeking you tonight. And, Lord, we, we expect nothing less than the truth. So, Lord, fill us and, and help us to be conscientious and that we really stay tuned in. And, Lord, we know this is so important. And, Lord, for those who just need you in such a special way tonight, Lord, we know so much is going on and there's so much sickness. And, Lord, we, we just know for what we have gone through in the last um, weeks with Daniel. And, Lord, we know you are in the center of it, even though it so looks like the opposite is winning than what we want to win. It looks like that evil is winning, that that things are getting out of control. And and where is this all going to lead? And it looks so hopeless. And, and we can get so worked up. But Lord, help us to really center in on the fact that all throughout history, Old Testament, New Testament, in our present day, you are so at work. You know exactly what you're doing when and how and why. Lord, help us to simply trust you tonight. And Lord, as we um, now um, open our Bibles, Lord, make the words just come off the page. And may we, may we see things tonight that we never saw before. May we see truth. May we just be willing to let your Holy Spirit just do whatever is necessary so we can leave here different than when we came. And we will truly give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. This is my Bible. Uh, I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it is all that I need. Yeah, it is. Now, of course, we're going to go into Esther chapter 3 tonight, every word. But I'm going to be honest with you. When I started, this is the way I start. Like tomorrow morning, I will go right into the next chapter. And I will, first of all, just read it through. Just read it through. And I remember last week that I started um, on Wednesday morning. And I read Esther chapter 3. And I thought, boy, you know, what is there? It's so explicit. It's, it's, <laughs> these are just pathetic people. Um, it's, it's just one of those kind of lessons that, you know, what do you, this is the question that came to my mind after I read, what do you want me to see in this? What do you want us to learn? There's got to be more than just this story about Haman and, you know, just, I mean, we all have known this story. We all know what he's done and what, is, what he's about to do. And, and so what do you want us to learn? And I got into that, and, and I was glad for the snow and hardly very much activity this week. So I just took the time, and I just sat and, and pondered and waited on the Lord. And, and so I'm just going to give you a few points of what, before we start chapter 3 tonight, uh, that in chapters 1 and 2, and as we begin 3, that was the question I just said to the Lord, what do you want us to see than just the actual story? What lessons are there in here? And so this is what I what this is what I came up to. And the first one, I mean, I I just think above all this story, we can't help but look and see God's unfailing love and mercy, and His 
is providence to fulfill his plan. I mean, we know we, we, when we started already in September, you know, when we went into Jeremiah and we heard Jeremiah, you know, tell the kingdom of Judah, you better repent or you're going into exile. And, and, and then there was that wonderful 29th chapter. And, but in 70 years, you'll, he'll bring you all back. And because he's got a plan, he, he's, He's got a plan that will prosper you and give you a hope. And we know, and a future, and we know that that is Jesus. He was going to bring Jesus through. So, and then we have all this, this stuff going on. And so I, I thought, as much as I believe that they are out of God's will, that I, I, I mean, obviously, King Xerxes and, and that whole Persian Empire are out of God's will. I mean, they don't even know them, for that matter. They, King Xerxes, just like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius, I mean, you know, they thought they were the sovereign God, you know. And, um, but, but here, even, I thought, even though we're watching these evil people, we're also watching God's people. And, and there are things that I think the Lord wants us to see about today for, for our own personal lives. Um, are we getting too lax? Are we getting too um, ho-hum? Is it, is, are we putting in the effort? Do we really have the desire? Do we really want to be all that he has, that he wants for us? Are we really working at this? And you can't help but see, even though they are out of God's will, they're not out of his care. And he is going to be working his. So the first thing that I thought, Lord, help me to see in this book of Esther, your unfailing love and your mercy and, and your providence and how you are still working out your plan. And then the next one, I thought, Lord, I want to take a look at your providence and call it that and not ever call it coincidence. That, I, that this book, this book of Esther, has helped me to see that, that, that there's no such thing as lucky and that there's no such thing as coincidence and that you are a God who is fulfilling plans, who... The word providence, I want to use that word. I don't want to use the word coincidence anymore. Another thing I, I looked at it in the first couple chapters, I thought into the face of human nature without God. I mean, you cannot help but see. I mean, from Genesis 3, we saw self become born. And, and boy, self has been the problem ever since. But in these first two chapters, I really want to take a look in the face of evil and see that this is what transpires in a human heart without God. And I also do not want to miss that there are consequences, even though he's working a pro his, his providence, even though he, we see God in all of this, he does still deal with sin. He still deals with bad decisions. He still makes sure that there are consequences. And so you can't help but see that because they didn't go back when they should have, when they started mingling and just compromising and working themselves right into this culture, even though, even though they did keep their little traditions, I mean, they, they were notorious for being a different kind of people. They did have their little traditions, but, but that's about it. And how these consequences, I mean, I look at Esther, and I think what she had to lose because of this kind of behavior. I mean, there are consequences to sin, and, and I want this book of Esther to make sure that I never forget that. And I also want to take a good look of what, it, what happens in the life of someone like Mordecai, and it can just as well happen to any one of us. 
how if we do not work hard at this, if we get lax or if we even think we're spiritually okay, that we can just coast a little bit, that that is such a dangerous position. I mean, we said that Mordecai was the fourth generation who came over from the exile, who, who became exiled from the, the city of Jerusalem into Babylon. So it was, it was his great-grandfather that came over into the exile. And then he passed whatever down to his son. So that was Mordecai's grandpa. And then that man passed to his son, which was Mordecai's father. And then this father if anything, passed on other than the little traditions and the name being Jewish, that's, you know, that's about all. And I think how easy from generation to generation. So maybe that's one of the major things we need to take a look at this book and to wake us up and to realize how quickly that can happen. And then from last week's lesson, I saw... That if you are, if you are his child, if you belong to the Lord, there is no way we can ever say this. I didn't have a choice. Last week I couldn't help but see that there are choices, and there's only two. And but yet, as God's child, we have a choice. And if you're not God's child, you don't have a choice because you're always just doing what you want. And so there is no choice. But once you become his child, then you have a choice to what? Either do it your way or do it God's way. And how easy it is to do it your way because it usually appeases to what you want. And also, it's the easiest way. To, to take any situation, any difficult situation, it's so much easier to just, to just go about it your own way and try to handle it your way. And it, it, I just look at it like it floating in an inner tube down the river. It doesn't take any effort at all. But you'll never land in the right spot. And, and when you choose to do it God's way, that's going to take some work. It's like swimming against the current. It's swimming upstream, but it will always land you to the right place. So we have choices as his children, and it's very important that we remember that. And then another one I thought that I saw last week is that we talked about you know, why, why didn't Mordecai, why did he command Esther not to tell? He commanded her, don't tell him that you're Jewish. Don't tell him anything about you or, or the people. I mean, he just commanded her. And, and we talked about being ashamed. Are we, are we ashamed of, and I think that's very relevant, how, how brave and courageous are we? How how much do we really believe that this is so the truth? And everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs a personal encounter with him. How, and how are they going to know unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless someone's willing to tell them? I mean, and then when Paul says, I am not. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is. I mean, the gospel is the power of salvation for anyone who chooses to believe. How could anybody be ashamed of that? And yet, I think, you know, from this lesson and maybe a real take in look, maybe we too step back and would rather blend in, be less conspicuous, be less vocal, um, don't rock any boats, don't, you know, fluff any feathers, you know. So, and then another, another thing that I saw last week that just really, really hurt my heart was you know, he could just get rid of Ashtai, and then last week it was just that quick. You know, after one night with Esther, he just puts the crown on her head, and she's the queen. And, you know, where is marriage in this? And how all, all of that culture just, with God in Genesis 2, it's just that God puts two together to become one. It is a sacred union. It's a sacred covenant. It's a, it's a unique institution that he's set up and and just how frivolous and how 
But then how, you can't help but see that today. It's just so in that direction of where is the sacred covenant relationship in, this, in a marriage? Where is that? Isn't it special anymore? Isn't it something to work for? Isn't it worth fighting for? I mean, it's never easy, obviously, sticking two different people together. But if you want it bad, if, if, if God's at the top of your triangle, you will fight for your marriage. You'll work at it. And, and last week, I just saw that that was nothing to them. And I don't know if there were, no, if there was such a thing as marriage in that and then as we close last week, you know, how the, all of what Mordecai heard and, you know, you couldn't help but see God in the right place, using right people at the right time. And we said, what a God of details he is. And maybe that's one, another reason we study the book of Esther, just, just to be reminded that he is so intricate. I know he's big and he's majestic and he creates the whole universe, but yet he's so in tune with every detail of you and I. And so, um, you know, I want to remember that, that, that he misses nothing, that I can come to him with anything and everything, and that he is a wonderful, wonderful, loving God of details. But, but most of all, that he is always working his unfailing love and his mercy and his providence to fulfill his plan. I think that is probably one of the most wonderful things. And if that's what I learned in the book of Esther. But, but there are many, many warning signs too. So, okay, let's start here. After these events... So there were many events in chapter 2, but after all these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. You know, this guy kind of came out of nowhere, didn't he? And all of a sudden, we're reading about Haman. He's the son of Hamedatha, the Agite. He elevated him, giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So I think if we picture... Um, Haman here, I think we can't help but look at him as pretty much of a pompous individual who loves the limelight, who loves to be worshipped and bowed down to, and he loves to parade around in all of his self-glory, and um, he loves to have himself elevated. And I mean, I think we pretty much get the picture. And when I saw the word Haman... I thought, isn't this the truth? How, how throughout history, from you know, from Exodus, how Satan has wanted to get rid of God's people. I mean, you think about how how Pharaoh, how Pharaoh tried to get rid of God's people, and then then you you go on farther, and then you see how Haman. You know, a guy that just kind of came out of nowhere. We, we had no other words about him. And then now all of a sudden, here he is, and he's, he's in that high position. And how he, how he's a pawn in Satan's hands to get rid of God's people. I thought of um, King Herod, the time of Jesus, how he was used to try to get rid of God's people. And then, and then I, I couldn't help but think of Hitler, how, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of years later, but same thing. He wanted to get rid of God's people, how Satan was using him. And, and then all the way to our day and age where the Middle East, the fighting over Israel, the, how Satan still wants to get rid of God's people. And how he's still working at it. And, and now, even though we are not Jewish, but being a part of God's family, we've been engrafted. We are God's family. And so we should not be at all surprised when we start to hear rumors and we feel vibrations that, you know, the Christian, it's not the popular thing to be anymore. And we're probably going to see um, that it's going to be less and less so until the, the Lord comes. But anyways, how this has always been. God's people have always been under attack. 
And then another thing, did you notice about Haman? He was the Agite. He was a descendant. He was an Agite. And I don't think that that was put in here again, coincidentally. I think it was one of those words that the Holy Spirit jumps out that off the page, at least for me, because I want you to take a minute and turn back toward the front of your Bible to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15. And I want to read this story. And, you know, it's, it's a sad story too because, and it all has to do with the same kind of self and control and, and wanting to do it his way. And we all know about that that Saul was the first king of Israel. God didn't really want them to have an earthly king because he was their king. But they just whined and bellyached, and so he finally gave them a king. And, and Saul, remember his description, he looked so kingly, he always stood higher than everybody else, and, and yet he really was such a small man, really. Um, and you're going to read with me on this. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, now remember, Samuel was the God's prophet used to, to tell God's words to, you know, the king at that time, and that was Saul. And then we see many prophets later, but God used these prophets to be his spokesman, to be able to tell these kings his word. And so here Samuel says to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. See, the Amalekites were, were the, the biggest enemy of Israel. And so, verse 3, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Now, do you think that there are any interpretation problems here when it's said that distinct? I mean, in that absolute, these are the instructions from the Lord. Now, listen, he says, um, I will give you what it takes to destroy, and I want you to destroy everything. Do not spare them. Put them to death, men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Verse 7, then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havalah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Now, <laughs> that is totally not what verse 3 said. But apparently he, he is king and can do what he wants, so he decided he is going to take King Agag alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. And that's not quite true. That's not quite true because we find in first signal 27 and 30, and from our lesson to destroy everybody, there were a few little sneak buys. He we have this destroy everybody. And that's why we have this Haman, this Agite. So anyway, it says, but Paul and the army spared Agag, Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything that was good. These, they were unwilling to destroy completely because, well, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So they wanted to keep the best, of course, but then anything that was blemished or, you know, maybe a little handicapped or whatever, they don't totally destroy. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul's gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. In other words, 
Abe was taking all the credit for this major victory, and, you know, he was Mr. Big Shot, and so, you know, let's just, you know, erect this monument so you can all just thank me for all, all what I did. Well, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Can you imagine him saying that? But he did. But Samuel said, this is great. Samuel said, well, then, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? I mean, if everything was destroyed, um, I must be hearing things. Hmm. Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They speared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. So what do you think of that? Here's the king of Israel, anointed by God. You would think he would be so humbled to be able to be the king of this kingdom of Israel. But instead, he says to Samuel, um, no, we kept the best to be able to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He didn't claim God even has his. But we totally destroyed the rest. Verse 16 Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul replied, tell me. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission. The Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their thing, king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle, took the, took the from the plunder the best of what was devoted, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. He repeated himself. Why would not you like this? And this is what Samuel's reply was: Does the Lord delight in burn offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now, somehow, I mean, they did eventually kill Agag, but in the meantime, there, there had to be a few stinkers that snuck by or, or whatever, because they, they did not, God said, kill everything. He didn't want anything of the Amalekites to be continued. He didn't want any little bad seed to fester and to have happen exactly what we see in Esther chapter 3. So when we read, all of a sudden, here comes Haman, and he's an Agite. So this man, if Saul would have just done what he was supposed to, this, this man would have never been here. Now, all the royal officials, verse 3, at the king's gate, knelt down, paid honor to Haman. We're back in Esther now. And in verse 2, it says, All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. So the king... He commanded that everybody bow down, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Well, that was good. I mean, let's face it. I mean, that, that was good. But, you know, why, why all of a sudden is he not obeying? Could it be that you can, you can know your practiced rituals so well and you don't have to be living a life for the Lord at all. But you know these, these traditions that have been pounded into you. And maybe the Ten Commandments had been pounded into him. And he just heard, you know, I cannot bow I, because thou shalt not bow down to anybody. You know, but the Lord, he, could, could those commandments have, because he, he just, it was part of their tradition, it was part of their rituals. 
Whether that was why, I don't know, but he didn't bow down. But then the royal officials, verse 3, at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do, you dis- why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Now, in your questions, I did ask that, and it was kind of a trick question, but I I just wanted you to think. In fact, I put it in in a question like, like you were supposed to know. I mean, like why now does Mordecai tell them that he is a Jew? Why now? I mean, last week, he commanded Esther not to tell them. And now, here, he's telling them. Now, the answer to that question is, we don't know. We don't really know. But if you do put yourself in the story, why would he feel freer to tell them now you know, maybe, maybe, wouldn't it be great if he was convicted? And, and maybe, you know, the tradition of the Ten Commandments didn't resonate. And he thought, no, I can't do that. Um, and maybe he did then say, you know, I can't because um, we have a law that says. And, and maybe he just, would that be great if that's why he didn't? And, and maybe that's great that, that's, that he told them because... He felt compelled that it was time, to be honest. That would be wonderful. But he could have also decided to tell them because, you know, Esther was pretty well-firmed as queen. And maybe he thought, really, what can happen to us now? I mean, you know, my cousin is queen of of, uh, Persian Empire. So, you know, what's it going to hurt? They're not going to do anything to us. You know, maybe... He just was getting a little smug. We really don't know. Now, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were. See, did did you, when you read that over and over, did that bother you? That, that, They were called Mordecai's people. That it wasn't God's people. And I went back to Exodus and the books prior, and it was always, they were always known, the Jews were known as God's people. And yet here, so in other words, they probably didn't even know anything different. They were just different because they, they had a few little different quirky things that they did, you know, but, um, but they, it was, that's, more, that's Mordecai's people. Hadn't he ever told them about God? I mean, again, so different than Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Absolutely day and night contrast. So they were known as Mordecai's people. He's, so he's, so um, Haman scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So uh, verses 5 and 6 I think are very troubling. And, and I, I couldn't help but, again, go into it because I thought if, I, if I'm going to stand on this, I'm going to have to have Scripture proof to show you. And, and I found Scripture verses throughout Old and New Testament. God loves to be acknowledged. In fact, Solomon wrote it, and you know the verse as well as I do in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that this is what the Lord wants, to have us trust him with all of our heart. Not lean to our own understanding, but in all of our ways, acknowledge him. And I see no acknowledgement of the Lord whatsoever. And when we acknowledge him, the promises he will direct our path. Now, the wisest man, God gave Solomon this wisdom and had, had it put in, in the book of Proverbs. And these are for us to, to hold on to. 
And that is what God wants for us to trust him with all of our heart. Not this middle of the road. Try to, you know, when it's convenient, when no one's watching, then, oh, Lord, I'll praise you. But, but I sure don't want to look like some odd, oddball. And, and I don't want to be con- too conspicuous. And So I'll just keep my mouth shut. And I don't, I, like I said before, I don't want to cause any trouble. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. So, you know, I'm just going to stay silent about this. You know my heart, Lord, you know. No, he wants us to acknowledge him. And then I heard Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 21. Jesus said this. He said, where your treasure is. In other words, where you put your priorities, where you put your emphasis, what, what, what part of you it, everything revolves around, which you just, just love so much. It is the number one thing in your life, in your world. And he said, you know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So in other words, if your priority, if your treasure is not the Lord himself, and only you can answer that question, but then don't be surprised in your behavior. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then Jesus also said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, I mean, you know this verse too, no man, no man can serve two masters. You cannot have it both ways. You can't compromise with the world and just just be incognito and not and just blend in and then and yet be one of God's people. And then I'm going to have you um, turn to Revelation chapter 3. And we will be going over this. It's, to me, you just can't go over it enough. But in the spring, we'll be going over this, the seven letters that Jesus and John write specifically. But, but here in John chapter, or that John wrote in Revelation chapter 3, this to me resonated with what we're studying tonight. Starting with verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Jesus said to John, write this down and send this off to this church. These are the words of the amen, the beginning and the end, the so be it. These are the words of the one that his words are amen. So be it. Don't even try to debate it. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. If you need a verse to that question when I said, can you play both sides? When you wonder, you know, you just, you just kind of think it's so much easier. And it's, it's just, in your book, you know, such a better way to deal with it. So that, you know, I, I'm just kind of neutral. And here, this verse, I hope this verse, because Jesus himself says, I wish you were either hot or cold. And he's not saying, I wish you were either for me or against me, one or the other, because this, this in between is, no, he is saying, and I, I usually describe it the best way I can by use, the use of water, because he talks about lukewarm. He said, rather have you be cold or wish you would be hot, one or the other, because see, one of those, it's good for something. You know, and if you use water, you know, let's say hot, we all know it's so, you know, you want, you want to wash your dishes in hot water. And, and, when, and when you, um, then let's say you have achy muscles, and I know this is, this I can relate to, and there's just nothing like a hot, like a hot tub. It's going to soak some sore muscles in. Probably like a hot tub. Have you been, ever stepped into a hot tub expecting it to be so soothing and it's lukewarm? 
I mean, it's, it's not going to do for your muscles what you intended it to do. It's good for nothing. Or, or the cold. You're real thirsty. You are so parched. And you see a faucet. And you can't get there quick enough. And you are just anticipating this cold water to quench your thirst. And you turn it on. And it is lukewarm. And it just about does spit out of your mouth. It's good for nothing. And that's what Jesus said. You got you to check. You can't have it both ways. And then finally, Matthew 13. Just go forward to Matthew 13. And I'm going to read from a very familiar parable that Jesus, I mean, we, we know it so well, but I don't know what triggered me to see this parable in this particular lesson, but it's the parable of the sower. You know, when, when Jesus was talking about this parable, when he said the parable of the sower and the seeds, the seeds are whenever you hear God's word. Whenever God's word is being either taught or read or whenever God's word is placed before you, you have the choice to decide what kind of soil that word is going to go in. I mean, I mean, even, even in Bible study, I think sometimes it can even be where maybe a particular part of the lesson you don't resonate with or you think, oh, I don't need this part. And all of a sudden, you're going off to what you're going to be doing later and tomorrow, and, and you just start drifting. And I, I got a verse for that, too, Hebrews 2.1. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews wrote, just nailed it. He said, you better pay careful attention to what you have learned or you will drift. And if you are not paying careful attention, if you don't have that desire, if you don't have that longing to know. So anytime God's word is before you, you can decide what kind of soil that word is going to go in. And sometimes you didn't even catch it. And so you leave here and you know what? The whole thing was shot, really. You didn't catch it. You didn't care. You didn't, it didn't matter to you. You didn't think it was your cup of tea. And so then what happens? It says the birds just come and take it away. I mean, Satan just said, good, I'm glad they didn't listen because that might have changed their life. Or this is the one that I really could relate to this week's lesson. It said in verse 20, the one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. And I do feel that great-grandpa passed some things on to grandpa and grandpa passed some things on to dad and dad did pass a few and I think it got less and less and less and more less intense, less, less important, you know, a little more casual, a little more, um, yeah, but that was then, you know, today's different. Yeah, that kind, kind of watered down. But, you know, when you first hear it, yeah, that sounds really good. And I think, you know, this is an easy one, too. You know, you can get fired up when you hear it. And I'm telling you, if you walk out of here and you don't keep going over it, you don't make it yours. You don't make it a part of you. You don't, you don't, you're not careful in making sure that you are concentrating and working at getting this into fertile soil so that it has roots so when you do need it, there it is. So this is, this is what happens. I mean, you thought it was good at the time, but since there, he has no root, it lasts only a short time. Now look at this. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. So, you know, I know they, they're Jewish, they're God's people, and yet, if you're not working at it and it gets watered down and you get, and you get lazy and you get lax, at the time when trouble, that's, that's why we're not hearing God's name. I mean, there is, I mean, between verses 4 and 5, I always say what I would wish was happening in that white space. 
I wish Mordecai was just saying, oh, my word, what have we done? I mean, I heard the Ten Commandments, and now all of a sudden this is coming, rushing back to me, and Lord, I need your help. But no, no. So at the time of trouble and persecution, we're going to end tonight in chapter 4, verse 1. And this what I think it's just such a sad, sad story. Now, verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the purr, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So they picked the exact, I mean, I think the reason why in verse 7 we see it so detailed is because God wants us to see that they, it's like they got the calendar out. And they, they started picking in this year, in this month, on this particular day, we are going to take care of all of Mordecai's people. Then Haman, verse 8. Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all of, our, of other people and who do not obey the king's laws. Now, that is a lie. You know, Haman had to say whatever he had to say to get the king, you know, on, on to his side here. And so he exaggerated. I mean, it's true that there were people dispersed. We said that because there were so many of them, they had to get dispersed to 127 provinces. So they were all over the place. And yes, they did hold to their traditions and, and they were a different people with different customs. But you know what? They, they didn't rock any boats. They, they, and I think this is kind of a sad part. They, they weren't trying to testify or be testimonies. I mean, they just kept to themselves. And, but it was noticeable. People probably said, well, you know, they're a little different. But, you know, they're good neighbors. And, but, you know, they couldn't have been disobedient to the king's laws. They couldn't have been. Or there would have been trouble way before this. But see, that's why they didn't leave and go back. It's because they were comfortable there. They, they didn't mind the way things were. And so they just did what they were told. So there wouldn't be problems. So Haman is just getting the king all riled up. And so he says, it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. <laughs> in other words, I'll even pay for it. You, you talk about heartless. You talk about they could care less about human life. So the king took his signet ring. Of course, of course, he's, this is going to just sound so good to him. Let's get rid of people like that who, who don't think that I'm the king, that they don't think I'm the god of this empire. I mean, so the king took his signature ring. I mean, that's what it was like, his signature from his finger, gave it to Haman, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, you keep the money, and you do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, king, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. I mean, it was repeated. We, we hear it over and over. If there was a memo that had to go out by courier, remember, it was sent to all provinces, all people in every language. They wanted no excuses. Like, oh, we didn't get it. Our language. Apparently, we were missed, or we didn't understand it. It wasn't in our dialect. It wasn't in our language. Boy, they covered every base. Made sure they knew on the exact day of the month in one day, these people were going down. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out. And the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. <laughs> that had to bother you. They just signed a decree to kill off all these people. In one day. And it didn't even bother them. In fact, ah, uh, let's meet for a happy hour. I mean, it doesn't come any worse than this. Is this what you want us to see in Esther, in the book of Esther? That this is what, right in the face of evil, this is what a heart without God looks like. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. King James used the word perplexed. Other versions was, were confused. I mean, everybody, all everybody, not just the Jews got this, everybody. And, you know, whether it's perplexed, confused, I put stunned. I mean, when do you get a notice saying that a whole group of people are going down. Men, women, children, everything. In one day, they're going to be gone. I mean, they're stunned. They're confused. They're probably saying, man, I know so-and-so. They're nice. What is the deal? This doesn't make any sense. What did they ever do? So, and then can you imagine what's going on in the minds of the Jews? And oh, they're in a happy hour. So this is nasty. And so I just had to take one more verse. This is when Mordecai learned of all that had been done. I mean, when he heard about all the details. When he pretty much thought that, you know, he, it was a shoe and he could confess who he was because, I mean, after all, Esther is the queen and, you know, nothing's going to be done to her, you know, their people now. I mean, and so now this is a shocker to him. When he learned of all this that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. And I want you to know that word bitterly is nasty too. Bitter. Bitter is a horrible emotion. And this is what Mordecai does. Now, I, I looked up. What, what does it mean when somebody puts on sackcloth and ashes? I mean, he's obviously going to stand out. He's, all, he's obviously, he's obviously um, ha, he has a message. He, he wants attention. He wants his message to be heard or something because this, this is not going to go down easy. So he's making a scene on purpose. And I looked it up, and sackcloth and ashes, it meant mourning. But also, it was supposed to be for repentance. And, oh, this is, this is when I so wish we could have had such a different chapter four. If he went out with sackcloth and ashes, and he just cried out to the Lord, saying, we are desperate. We have made a mistake. We haven't listened to you. You know, 
Because God in his unfailing love and mercy, and he's working all, he's in the middle of all this anyway. Oh, how he could have changed this story. But he didn't. He was out there wailing bitterly, and that brought me to back in Daniel chapter 12. I remember when Daniel had that fourth, that last last vision really got his last three chapters of Daniel, and they, it really got to him. This last vision really got to him. And he poured out his heart to the Lord, and the Lord said, don't be afraid. I will give you strength. And and, and Daniel says these words in Daniel 12, those who are wise. And remember, Daniel, he understood what a wise person was. A wise person is one who knows in and of himself he's not. And so he knows that he needs to acknowledge and go to the Lord with everything. And we see none of that here. Mordecai is not wise Daniel was wise. He went, he went to the Lord and was honest and upfront, and he's, he never wavered from his stand. And he, remember we talked about it last week, they too, those four guys, had death staring at him in the face. No different than this, but they were willing to believe their God. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. That's what Daniel said. When you are wise, when you are getting your strength, when you are getting everything, your, your wisdom, when you are getting direction, when you know it's coming from the Lord, you will be as bright as the heavens. And he goes on to say, and those who lead many to righteousness. And this is what I don't see them doing I mean, don't you think what an opportunity for them to say, oh, we have failed, but let it, we want to tell you about our God. I mean, look what Daniel did to Nebuchadnezzar. Look how many times he had to admit and say, you're going to grow claws and you're going to grow feathers and you're going to eat grass and you're going to roam around for, like an animal until you realize I mean, that's pretty gutsy to tell a king that. When he looked at Belshazzar and said, you're going down. You know that hand on the wall, what it said? Because you would not listen and your heart is hard. You're going down. And that night he did. I mean, that's pretty nervy too. But he dared and he was no different than, than Mordecai, no, no different than us. This kind of power, when you are sold out, not just playing half and half and scared to death about what's going to happen to you. Daniel says, and those who lead many to righteousness, they will be like the stars forever and ever. I remember when we did that verse, I went to Paul in Philippians 2 where he said that we will, when we belong to him, we will shine like a star. That means you stand out. And you want to stand out. You don't want to blend in. You can, you can shine like, this, like the, the brightness of the heavens. You can shine like a star but instead, he's out there in that sackcloth and ashes, wailing away and bitter. Lord, is this what you want me to see in the book of Acts? Compared to Daniel, boy, did we do it right, didn't we? We just have to take this seriously. We have a serious God, a jealous God who expects us to stand for him after what he stood to do for us. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this lesson. Father, we just don't want to miss it. You're this, like we've said so many times, we are just watching this year how pieces of Old and New Testament just come together, how the words of Jesus so coincide with the, with the prophet's 
and what they prophesied. And it's just phenomenal of how it all fits with the same message. That you are an unfailing God, a faithful God, whose love never ends. And who is willing, despite our wrong decisions, you will still, you will still save your people. You love your people. Father, help us just to never take that for granted. Help us to always want to be in the center of your perfect will. Even though we know that you will let us drift because we have not worked hard at it. And, and there we go off. And Father, then you ignite your permissive will and how you still can turn all things out for good. Father, we marvel at that. Your grace, your mercy. And again, I say your unfailing love. Lord, we know that to be like a Daniel, we know to be like Shadrach, Michigan, and Bendigo. When we sing this last song tonight, may we, may we take it to heart and know that this is what it takes. We've got to take time to be holy. We need to spend often time with, with you, Lord. Much time spent in secret, even. And we want to be able to have people see your likeness in us. So, Father, may all of these verses, and may they just come to resonate. And may we want this. And we know you want it for us. So my, may we, may we be, may we have the desire and do what it takes. May we seek you. And we know that when we really seek you, we will find everything we need. And we pray this all in our Savior's worthy name. Amen.